Okay, good morning, everybody. It's good to be here. Um, let us go to the Lord in prayer as we come and hear God's word. Dear Lord, I want to thank you for this morning. Thank you for bringing each one of us here, not by chance, but you have ordained us to be here, to sing praises to you, to listen to your word, and to pray together as God's family for the church and for the world. And so, Lord, we pray as we come this morning and listen to your word. May your word not return to you empty. May your word speak to our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The first slide, yeah. So in the busy, the busyness of Singapore, uh, what do you do for relaxation and unwinding? I guess various things. I love to go for walks and I love uh, bird watching. And it's a good way for me to unwind and enjoy God's creation. And I did quite a fair bit of that during my sabbatical that I couldn't do when I'm involved in ministry. And I believe I can learn a lot from observing birds. Because even our Lord Jesus encouraged us to do that, right? Look at the ravens, look at the birds in the sky. And so we can learn much. So I came across this picture. Let me see if it works. Okay, this picture of a jackana and his chicks. See, when the mother... Uh, Jacana sends danger. What she does is she gathers a chick under her wing. So this is the first one. You see them all hiding under the wing. And you get this picture of the many legs. So what caption would you give to this picture? Safe, secure, protected, provision maybe? And our passage today about Jesus Christ our Lord being our good shepherd will conjure up a similar caption. Safe, secure, protected, provision, and for Jesus in John 10, life. But before we plunge into John 10, we need to take a big picture look of the Gospel of John. Because it's very important for us to have a big picture so that we do not so that we can understand John better in this context. So we know that the key verse in the Gospel of John is John 20, 30 to 31. And over the course of us preaching through the Gospel of John, you have heard the different preacher pointing back to this verse, John 20, 30, 31, where John gave a clear purpose of him writing the Gospel of John, so that we will believe. However, we, are, we, we would not have fully grasped the Gospel of John without knowing and remembering the seven I am saying. Yep, so here is the seven I am saying that pocketed the whole of the Gospel of John. And today, in John 10, we're actually looking at two of the I am saying. We have covered the first two, and then we'll cover the rest, I think, five, six, and seven uh, in church camp, for those who are going to church camp. Sheep and shepherd, the theme always brings us to this well-known psalm, Psalm 23, a psalm that brings comfort to many of us, I believe, a psalm that brings assurance to many of us when we are going through challenging time. Psalm 23 is about us as sheep yearning and enjoying 
the security provided by our Lord Jesus Christ. It's about being led to pasture. It's about being, it's about being led to steal water. And here in John 10, Jesus using this very familiar uh, image of shepherd caring for his sheep to illustrate the very close relationship between himself and his sheep. And it also echoes the promise of pasture, the promise of protection, the promise of eternal life. And we can't read John 10 without understanding John 9. If you read the whole the two together, you will see they are very likely one continuous uh, discourse between, it started off with Jesus healing the blind man, the Pharisees' opposition, and now Jesus using the theme of the image of shepherd and sheep to continue his explanation of who he was. So the blind man, if you remember John 9 from last week, just a week ago, isn't it? Not too long ago, the sermon, right? John 9, Jesus healed the blind man, but the blind man was cast out of the synagogue. By casting him out of the synagogue, it deprived him of the only avenue that they know how to worship God. But see, even though he was cast out by the Jewish leader, John 9 continues and, and to John 10 to see how he was accepted by Jesus, his true and good shepherd. So during my sabbatical, I had the opportunity to take a short course in Israel. So I spent about three weeks uh, in Israel. And during one of those archaeological uh, site visits, I, I chanced upon a shepherd with his sheep. Here he is. Well, just across where I was looking at some uh, archaeological sites. I don't know, I'm preaching John 10, so I stab a few photos. And then this gives us an image in it of the, the, the shepherd leading the sheep. And I was just chatting with my, 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 my lecturer who was taking us through the course. And she kind of confirmed that the shepherding in the rural area in Israel today has not really changed much. Yeah? Most of the sheep that was kept are kept mainly for wolves. Thus, the shepherd can be herding the same flock of sheep for a long, long time. And they give them the opportunity to develop actually very deep relationship with the sheep. So close, she says, some of the shepherds even call the sheep names, the black nose, the one eye, the black leg, the black fat, uh, the black bottom, you know, these kind of names, right? So that's how close the shepherd is to, the, to his sheep. So turn with me to John 10, 1 to 2 in your Bible. And the, the, image, the, the immediate image that Jesus paints for us is a contrast between true shepherd and versus thieves or robbers. So John 10, 1 to 2, if you turn with me to your Bible, I think I have it in the text there. Yep. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the sheep of the flock. In verse 1, Jesus described the thieves and the robbers, and Jesus referenced them later on in verse 8 and 10 to a particular group of people. But we'll see that later. But I want to show you some photos to illustrate verse 1 and 2. So you see at the bottom, kind of bottom middle portion there, 
there's a bit of a rocks formation with holes or kind of openings. And this is a close-up of it. Yep. So when night falls, the shepherd out in the wilderness will start looking out for caves. All of a sudden, they know where they are, right? And what he will do, he will shove all the, all the sheep into that cave opening. And after putting them in there, he will rest at the opening between his sheep and the elements and the wild predators that are out there wanting to have a quick bite. And this is one way that the shepherd watches over the sheep. But there are also occasions where the shepherd herd his sheep closer to a village or a town. And outside in the village and town, you will see structures like this. So the top one is from Google, but the bottom one is uh, kind of a dig up, dug up uh, archaeological site of a sheep pen that is close to a village. So what it is that is a constructed sheep pen of high rocks, right? And when the, when the shepherd coming near to the village will then put his sheep into the, this communal sheep pen and engage the help of a gatekeeper to keep his sheep safe so that he can have a good rest, right? Imagine if you are out in the opening, you are, your sheep is in a cave, you are sleeping at the entrance, you can't really have a good rest. Uh, but here, putting them in a communal pen uh, gave them opportunity to rest. So for thieves and robbers wanting to get their hands on the sheep, they were to climb over the wall. Uh, so the Google picture probably gives you a bit of sense of the height of the wall. Uh, because the gatekeeper, as we see in, in John 10, 3, will not open the gate for them. And in verse 8 and 10, you will turn me to verse 8 and 10, Jesus actually referenced these thieves and robbers to those who came before him. He said, all who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. The thief comes only to steal, to kill, and to destroy. So who are this all who came before me? Obviously, Jesus is referencing to a particular group of people. It's not just a figurative speaking, all who came before me. So the immediate context, I would think, is taken from John 9. So you know what happened in John 9, right? After the blind man was healed, the Pharisees said, who healed you? Right? And in that, in that conversation, uh, they actually cast out the blind man. There are numerous accounts as well, prior to John 9, of the Pharisees, the Jewish leaders, and many acting in hostility towards Jesus. And this hostility actually escalated as Jesus goes closer and closer to the cross where they want to kill Jesus. John 9, 34, if you turn to me your Bible, is one such example of hostility. After the blind man, having defended Jesus, claimed that Jesus had to be from God because Jesus restored his sight. He also argues that God does not answer the prayer of a sinner. And since God healed him, this Jesus cannot be a sinner. And this Jesus cannot come from any other way, any other source, except from God himself. But their response to him was very curt. 
Don't think I have a slide for that, sorry, not yet. It was just this plain refusal to acknowledge Jesus that he is from God. Despite the very miracle that is before them, right? Men born blind now have sight. You cannot deny that. But yet, yet, they deny that the work can be done by our Lord Jesus Christ. So they answered him, they say, you are born in utter sin, and will you teach us? And they cast him out. So instead of rejoicing, hey, that this man have not been seeing for the most part of his life, and now he can see, and he say, hooray, well done. They say, you are a sinner. Who are you? How dare you to teach us? And they cast him out of the synagogue. And Jesus using this imagery of thieves, robbers, and he used it to expose the heart of the Pharisees, the Jewish leaders, and many others. By what they did, they are like thieves who steal, who kill, who destroy the salvation of Israel. Instead of turning them to Christ, turning them to God, they actually led them away and turned them away from God to themselves. They have become the idol for Israel. Going back to John 10, verse 3, and to him the gatekeeper opens, the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own by name and let them out. And when he has brought out his, all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, they know his voice. Verse 5, a stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. When a shepherd goes to collect his sheep, the gatekeeper, recognizing the shepherd, opens the gate for him to retrieve his sheep. But as I said earlier on, it's a communal sheep pen. So which means that there could be a few shepherds who have placed their sheep in their sheep pens. You can call them little black, little black leg, black nose, black face. I'm sure there are other sheep that has black face, black nose, and black leg. How would the shepherd know which sheep is his? So each shepherd has actually a different voice and mechanism to call the sheep and his flock. So I was told the shepherd will go into the pen and will do the calling. Yet the rhythm, the, the tone of the voice, the sheep associate with safety, security, and providence. And they will just gravitate towards that voice. And when that happens, the shepherd will lead them out. It's very foreign to us. We have never seen that happen before, right? But those in our midst who have dogs as pets, I think we'll probably appreciate that a bit more. Our dogs recognize the voice of the owner, yes, right? Should be. Uh, so my friend in Australia, is manage a sheep farm, so I, uh, I spent a few days with sheep and sh I won't call him a shepherd, but he's, uh, he manages a sheep farm. Right? And sheep dogs, right? And, and one day, I was just sitting in his, his kind of backyard. His sheep dog was running around, so I like to call them, I like to play that, I pet them, because they're, they're quite, quite, quite fun. And I caught one of the dogs, and at the same time, because he needed him, the dog to do some work, my friend also called out to the same dog. He has a few, but why he called the same, I do not know. But same dog. Who do you think the dog ran to? You think about it. 
So when Jesus said to the sheep, My sheep hears my voice and follow me and will flee from the voice of the stranger. Jesus is saying, My sheep, who is precious to me, recognizes my voice because of the deep and intimate relationship that I have with my sheep. They know my voice. They know that this is the voice of the shepherd that I can trust. And that is how, for the, for the Jews at that point in time, hearing this illustration, they will almost instantaneously understand, understood what Jesus was saying. But besides being the true shepherd, doesn't equal to Jesus being a good shepherd, isn't it? A true shepherd can be a bad shepherd as well. But Jesus says, I'm the true shepherd, I'm also the gate, the door, and the true and the good shepherd, you'll see later on. But in verse 9, the, the second or the, the third I am saying, I am the door, if anyone enters by me, he will be safe and will go in and out and find pastures. See, as the door of the sheep to the sheep pen, it means that the sheep has to pass through him, the door, to leave the sheep pen and wild predators, thieves, robbers, where to pass the shepherd to pray or to get to the sheep. So for the sheep, this door or gate is, the, is also the entry point to pasture, an entry point to safety. And thus Jesus says, he is the door, or in some translation, the gate to his sheep. But he's also the gate to pasture. And to a shepherd, the image of pasture is a very powerful image of provision and life. Why? Israel sits on a mixture of fertile land and desert land. And the shepherd is always in search of pasture and water. If not, the sheep can't graze, the sheep will not eat, the sheep cannot produce wool, eventually the sheep will die. So the shepherd's role is really to guide them uh, to green pasture. They may get more of that in the summer months, but summer months only last a few months. There are winter, autumn, and spring. There are green pasture in those times, but the shepherd has to search for it. So when Jesus promised, if you come through me, you'll always find pasture. Again, that promise will be like, wow, I want that. I want that because I don't need to worry about finding pasture for my sheep anymore. So the promise of the pasture, the pasture is a promise of eternal life. This is what Jesus promised to those who believe in him. That they'll never perish but have eternal life. And this image of pasture, or green pasture, of still water is reflected where? Psalm 23. Isn't it? A psalm that we're familiar with. And we can draw the two together. We know that this promise of eternal life, this promise of provision, this promise of life is nothing new. God has been promising His people right from day one, life, providence, 
and pasture. And Jesus now, at this point in his life, just before he goes to the cross, is saying, it's going to come true. Through me. Through my Lord, our Lord Jesus Christ. And now that Jesus has established his ownership of the sheep, he has promised pasture through him, and now Jesus introduced a fourth I am saying, I am the good shepherd of my sheep. And it's an important image, isn't it? Because this good shepherd, not just lead and guide, but this good shepherd, as we will see in verse 11 and 14, lay down his life for his sheep. And Jesus contrasts that with a hired hand. So let's read together. One, two, three. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lay down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand is not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep. See the wolves coming and leaves the sheep and flees. The wolf snatches them, scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own knows me. A hired hand is one who is paid to look after the shepherd's sheep. The reason why he's looking after the shepherd's sheep is because he's going to get some money at the end of his time looking after the sheep. But for the hired hand, it's not worth risking his life for just some salary, some pay, some form of gain. Because he deemed his life as more important than that. Tending the sheep is just a job. So when dangers knocks, a wolf comes, a fox comes, you say, why risk my life fighting over the fox, the wolves? I just run. What do I forego? I forego my pay. But I save my lives. And that's what Jesus is trying to show. That a hired hand will run at a sign of danger. On the contrary, verse 11 and verse 14 tells us that Jesus, who is a true and good shepherd, will protect his sheep with his dear life to the point where he will lay down his own life for them. See, God never delegates his role as shepherd of his people to anybody else. Every single sheep that belongs to God are precious to Him. I want us to just hold on to that thought that you and I, who are, who are called God's sheep, as we sit here or we are listening to this sermon, we are precious to God. But what does it mean then for Jesus to lay down His life for His sheep? And we have to go back to the, actually at the beginning of the John Gospel. See, in John chapter 1, verse 29, the next day he saw, John saw, John and John the Baptist saw Jesus coming towards him, and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 35, 36, the next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he was walking by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. In the Old Testament sacrificial system, an unblemished lamb dies in the place of Israel 
as an act of atonement for their sin. That every year, Israel has to do that, had to go and sacrifice the lamb so that they can come before God. Without doing that, they are not able to come before God. But for Jesus, John proclaimed that Jesus is the lamb, the lamb that takes away the sin, not only of Israel, but of the world. And it will not be an annual ritual because Jesus had to die again and again, but it's once and for all. And so when Jesus said this word, those who were listening would likely do not have the full idea what he meant. But Jesus giving them a glimpse of what is to come. He knows the cross is just round the corner. He knows what he's going to accomplish on the cross. And he's now telling the disciples, telling the people, what he's going to accomplish through his death on the cross. Of course, all this will become clear to them when he died on the cross, an empty tomb, and his ascension into heaven. His death will bring forgiveness. His death will allow us to enter into, the, into God's presence, similar to the Old Testament sacrificial lamb, but different because the, the Old Testament sacrificial lamb is only a substitute, temporal substitute. The difference is Jesus will actually take away our sin once and for all. It means that Jesus' death brings forgiveness. The death of the sacrificial lamb only brings that temporal covering that allowed them to go into the temple. But Jesus' death takes away and removes the guilt that we have before God totally so that we can enter into God's presence anytime and for eternity. And so we're all very familiar with John 3.16, isn't it? For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. And for God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through Him. So Jesus lay down his life to do what? To redeem his own from Satan's grubs, to destroy death and give eternal life. And you know what? Jesus did that willingly. He willingly laid down his life for his sheep. In verse 17 and 18, you can read that in your, from your Bible. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. So what does that mean? As you, come, as you just move closer and closer to the cross, he wants to dispel the idea that his death on the cross is due to some clever plot of the religious leader. His death on the cross is because he has lost control and the Roman authority has full control over his life. He's saying, no, no, no. Throughout the gospel, we see this very familiar phrase, the hour has not yet come. 
isn't it? Right from the beginning. And the turning point, if you go to go and search for it, is in John 13 or John 12, where I say the hour has come. And what does that mean? Who determined the hour? Jesus. Who said that the hour is not yet here? Jesus. And who said that the hour is here? Jesus. And what does that mean then? Is Jesus' death on the cross is orchestrated, planned, divinely carried out right to the dot, the point, the time that Jesus and God want it to be. The second thing that Jesus says is this, that no one has authority over my life except God the Father. So if you know the story of John 19, so Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me. Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered him, you have no authority over me at all unless it has been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivers me over to you has greater sin. What is Jesus saying here? What he said in chapter 10 is reflected here in chapter 19. Pilate thinks that he has authority to let Jesus go or not. And Jesus just got to justify why Pilate should let him go. Because twice, isn't it? If you go back to chapter 19, twice Pilate say, I got nothing against this man. I can find no wrong in this man. By the time when he, went, he goes out and tells the people that, the people cast fear in his heart because they say, either you are you know, against Rome you know, or you are really not, not, not able to, 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 to judge. And he comes back to Jesus and says, hey, tell me, give me something to release you. And it was the last straw. And he tells Jesus, don't you know I can release you? And Jesus said, no, you, you cannot. You do not. Because God remains sovereign to the point of Jesus' death. And all this is God's plan to fulfill His promise to save the world. It's to fulfill Jesus taking away the sin, dealing with the sin once and for all. Therefore, the cross happens in God's perfect timing and under God's sovereign authority. So let us pause and ponder this deep love that God pours upon us as His sheep. Our Good Shepherd went all the way to lay down His life so that you and I can be saved and have eternal life. So what does Jesus, our Good Shepherd, mean to you and me? So on Friday, we were DJing and one of the reflections that came through was this, that I can cling on to God's promise that He will always love, care for me, no matter the circumstances. This comes from one of my DG mate. And I think it's, it, it was it's so encouraging, isn't it? But is it not everyone walk away from this encounter with Jesus, believing and praising God? The rest of the chapter, 10, 22 to 42, recorded for us two responses. But before we do that, we see how Jesus responds to one of the questions that was asked. 
In John 24, he says, So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. So we don't know how long has this encounter been from the earlier encounter about the Good Shepherd. Probably a few days has passed, and this is a fresh encounter. And the Jew is wondering and coming to Jesus and saying, Hey, you can tell us clearly or not. Don't beat around the bush. You are Christ or not the Christ. So there's only two reasons, there's only two possible understanding that we can try to understand this question, right? One is Jesus has not been clear at all from the beginning. Therefore, they ask, hey, please be clear. Don't go and beat around the bushes and tell us are you Christ or not. Or that the people are so dense that they have chosen not to believe. And Jesus tells us, Jesus' answer to us tells us that it's more likely the second scenario. Jesus told them, sorry, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my fathers bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. Jesus claiming to be Christ has been clear as day. He has told them, that he has established it with miracles. And there's only one conclusion to draw, isn't it? That if they still have not acknowledged and recognized Jesus, using the illustration of the sheep and the shepherd, it only means that they do not know the shepherd. They are listening to a different voice. They are listening to the voice of a different shepherd. And not Jesus. Not God. And so Jesus say this in verse 27 to 30. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one snatched them out of my hand. My Father has given them to me. It's greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Those who are God's sheep, Jesus promised eternal life, salvation, security. You'll never perish and no one can snatch them from his hands. Have you ever played a game of snatching game with your children or with a dog? Tuck a wall. And whoever is stronger will win the game, isn't it? And Jesus is assuring his sheep that as long as they are in his fold, and they'll always be, we will hear his voice, we will obey, and we will follow, and no one can snatch us out of God's hands. Because why? The one who holds us in his hands is none other than God and God himself. No one Nothing is stronger or greater than God the Father. As Jesus has said it there, right? It's greater than all. I want us to be assured that this is where we are, our position. If you imagine God's hand, we are in God's hand, and God holds us in God's hand. Nothing, nothing can take us away from that. And so John recorded two responses for us 
One group wanted to stone Jesus and arrest him, calling him a blasphemer because he claimed to be God. They have chosen to ignore, to cast away the work that he has done, just as they cast away the blind man who was healed by Jesus. They dismissed that the work of God and in some part of John even attribute that to demon, to the evil one. And in John 10 as well, we see that. But the other group, the other group believes like this blind man. Jesus who saw that he was cast out Jesus knew that he was cast out, went to look for him. And as he went to look for him, Jesus accepted him to be his own. Can close the slides. How about you? For those who have yet to believe, is Jesus a blind man? Or Jesus a mad man? Jesus a liar? Because he claims to be God. So if I tell you today that I am God, worship me, you'll think you are crazy. Do we say that of Jesus? How about Jesus? For those who have yet to believe, my challenge to you this morning is this. Have you searched scripture about this man? Don't just dismiss him as a madman. Don't just dismiss him, but search what he claims to be. He claims to be God. He claims to be Son of God. And I want to encourage you to search Scripture. Because at the end of the day, if Scripture holds true, you will be the, lo the greatest loser. You will miss out and lose out. Green pasture, still water, eternal life. But if Jesus is not, then you've got nothing to lose. Maybe you waste some time searching scripture. But I can tell you with all my hearts, you will not waste a single second of your time if you make the effort to search. So in ARPC, you and your friends can really ask questions or you can ask questions about Jesus by joining our Discovery Christianity classes. We run it three to four times a year. And this is really a class where you can come and ask all the questions you want to ask about Jesus. And we as the pastors will try to answer you. But if the message has gripped you so much today, and say, I cannot wait for the next DC class. I need to talk to somebody today. Then don't hesitate. Don't wait. Come and talk to me. Talk to the leaders. Talk to the person next to you. Talk to your friend and say, I want to find out about Jesus. I want to know this good shepherd. I want to enter through him as a door. I want to find green pasture. And very aptly, isn't it? Next week is our Good Friday and Easter. And I want to encourage you to attend, bring a friend to the Easter week, the, the English Presbytery Holy Week services on Wednesday and Thursday night. You're, not, you're the best time to search about this person, Jesus. You have the Holy Week on Thursday, Friday. You've got the Good Friday services. And I know uh, Reverend Edwin Tang is a good preacher, a sound preacher. I'm sure you will. You will learn 
and know who this Jesus is by attending the Holy Week services. And next week, we have three Easter services at ACSI and one Mandarin service here in the chapel. So there are plenty of opportunity just within this week alone for you to say, I want to find out more about this person, Jesus. Or for you to say, hey, i got friends who have yet to know about Jesus. I want to bring them as well. But for Christian, for you and I, will say, I believe, I believe. What, who is Jesus to me? Do you see yourself? Do I see myself as sheep? When we say yes to that, this is what it means to be sheep, yeah? Defenseless, helpless, and needing the shepherd to lead me to find pastures. No more I, me, myself. My education, my work, my security. But it's about God, God, God. That is what it means to say I am God's sheep. And when we, are, when we say that we are God's sheep, you know, it's actually very liberating. It's very liberating because you know that Jesus is the one that will lead you. Jesus is the one that will protect you. Jesus is the one that will defend you. Liberating, isn't it? Because we can't do it. God can. And so, as you hear the sermon today, I want you to think seriously about surrendering yourself. To just stop wrestling to find life. Stop wrestling to find direction, but turn to God. But if you are saying, I sit here, I think, I'm not sure. My, my faith is a bit rocky at the moment. I, I feel that, you know, I am far from God. I feel that circumstances around me has pushed me away from God. Or there's these lies from Satan and deception telling you that you're not worthy to come to God. You're too sinful. Jesus will not want you. You're too sinful. I want us to turn to John 10, 29 and 30. A beautiful two, three verses that I want us to memorize. Because this is what it says in it. My Father has given them to me. It's greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Not too long a passage, not too long a verses to remember, but these two verses, I believe. Of course, there are many other verses, but these two, I want you to run back to it every time when you feel that the rug has been pulled from your feet and you feel that you have lost your footing and you wonder, God loves me? Why am I going through this? God loves me? Why am I suffering from this? Does God love me? Why am I going through these challenges? Come back to this verse. God loves you and God loves me and nothing can snatch us from Him. Our salvation, my salvation, is secure because he, Christ has me firmly in His hands. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I want to thank You that indeed our faith our lives is firmly in your hands. I pray, O oh Lord, that as we experience your goodness, your love, 
that you also help us to go forth, trusting, surrendering, but to go forth as well to tell many others of the Good Shepherd, the life that we can have under the Good Shepherd. Pray for some of us, those of us who are wrestling with life, that I pray, Lord, that this knowing Jesus as our Good Shepherd will bring us comfort and assurance that my, my life is in God's hand. For those of us who have yet to believe, I pray too that the promise of pasture, the, of eternal life, of protection, will draw us to search and to find out more about this person, Jesus. Pray and ask all this in Jesus' most precious name. Amen.